0: You seated.
1: Good morning, family. Uh, Pastor Tim asked me a couple days ago if I'd be willing to come up here and give a testimony. First thought that came to a brief testimony. First thought that came to my head: Are you kidding me? Stand up in front of all of those people and give a brief testimony. The testimony part—that's exciting. That's fun. That is sheer joy. Proclaiming what God has done for us, brief, that's a stretch. That don't compute. That's oil and water. I assured Tim I would do that. I grew up in northeast Ohio in a little small cow town called North Lima. Had two older brothers, a mom and dad who absolutely loved us. Attended a Mennonite church, went to all the Sunday school classes. Learned all the Bible stories forwards and backwards. Learned uh, memorizing scripture. It was a healthy and wholesome upbringing. A child who knew quite a bit about God at a very early age. It was a head knowledge. Somewhere along those healthy, good, growing up child years, I had quite an affinity for chemistry. Have no idea where it came from. At about 11, 12 years old, mom would say, hey, what do you want for your birthday? Oh, I want some stuff for my chemistry set. Okay, how about Christmas? Yeah, I want some more books. Really, really had quite an affinity for chemistry. I turned about 14 years old. I was helping my Mennonite grandmother clean out her attic. In that attic, I found a book printed in 1878 old book it was a do-all how to build log cabins how to build a water ramp how to build or to uh, smoke meat it was just an absolute do-all for farmers the last two chapters of the book were how to make your own explosives it no it was i'm telling you it was really cool it went everywhere from gunpowder through about seven or eight more main explosives to literally nitroglycerin. Now, it had not only the formulas, it had the ingredients, the process, the step-by-step how to do it. Probably a hard book to get a hold of today with Homeland Security. In any event, I thought this was really cool. So I started mixing black powder, gunpowder, in my chemistry set. And it was kind of cool. I did some pretty neat stuff with it. Got some good things to snap bang. Well, after a short period, I thought it just doesn't have enough kick to it. So I jumped ahead about three explosives and started making some of those. Now I want to tell you what folks. This stuff had some wallop to it. I used to uh, mix in what's called a mortar and a pedestal. It's crockery uh, bowl. It has a grinding pedestal to it. So I'd mix up batches of this kicked-up stuff. I would go out in the woods and literally blow up trees. Now, I wasn't mad at the trees. It was just fun to see them come crashing down. I'm talking some pretty big trees. Used to blow stumps up. Now, my parents had no idea what I was doing. Sneaky little kids can get away with a lot of stuff. July 31st. 1968, 9.45 p.m. I was sitting at my chemistry table in the basement of the house, had mixed up a rather large portion of this particular explosion, well over a cup. No grinding, no flames, nothing. Merely mixing. It blew up front and center. Folks, this was no small explosion. The concussion blew out the windows in the basement, knocked the knickknacks off the walls. The crockery turned into shrapnel. The concussion took out both my eardrums. The explosion took out six inches of the main artery in my leg. The shrapnel from the crockery shredded my arms and chest. It was a hoot, it fell to the floor, And I was conscious, probably for only a minute or two. But I remember vividly, not audibly, calling out to God, Lord, forgive me for what I did. Save me. I accept Christ as my Savior. And I remember saying, I want to come to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Lord, if I can live any form of a normal life, please let me live that life. The ambulance took me to the local hospital about 10 miles away. I went flatline on a heart monitor. They brought me back. That hospital said there's nothing we can do for this kid. He's in too bad a shape. They took me 20 miles north to a large city hospital. That night and into the next day, I had three surgeons operating on me for over 12 hours. They told my parents in the morning I would be blind for life and that a high probability they would be amputating my leg by Friday. This happened on a Wednesday. I want to tell you what, don't ever underestimate the power of God, never. Prayer warriors came forward, people poured out, praying, praying, praying. The night of that surgery, I had 13 pints of transfusions, the blood was coming out as fast as it was going in. I woke up the next morning in ICU with over 400 stitches in my body. I was wrapped, it looked like a mummy, spent nine days in ICU. They then took me to a room where I spent another five weeks, and not having time, all I can say, it was brutal, continually in and out of surgery continually having to be bathed in what's called a saline solution. If I never have another one the rest of my life, I will not miss it. That time in the hospital was tremendously difficult. Physically, yes, probably more emotionally. My mother was a saint. She would help me, talk with me, pray with me. I was a wreck. They finally let me come home First week of September, I wanted to come home so bad. I said to myself, "Yeah." On the way home, one of the biggest events that ever happened in my life took place. My mother said, "Hey, how about we stop at Walmart and get a cheeseburger and a chocolate milkshake?" Ah, oh, yeah, Mom, that'd be great. So we pulled into Walmart, the department store with the old soda fountain. I'm sitting there. She says, "Okay, let's go." Oh no, Mom! No, 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 no! You bring it out to me. My mother said, "I'm not bringing you out a cheeseburger. You want one, you got to come in and get it." No, folks, I was tremendously emotionally distraught. Bandage looked like a mummy. I'm not going in there. Mom said, "Fine. You sit here. I'll go in and get one." Whoa! She got about 150 feet from me. I'm sitting there like, oh, boy, cowboy, you got a problem now. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And by the grace of God, he gave me that second, second of will Just say, all right. I was afraid of what people were going to do. Laugh at me. You just don't know what can go through your head. So mom hears the door slam. She's standing there still looking away from me. I'm walking up to mom. She turns around sobbing, absolutely sobbing, looks at me and smiles and gives me a big old mama hug. She said, let's go in and get a cheeseburger. I remember walking into that restaurant with my head down. I didn't want people looking and staring at me. The whole way in through the store part, sitting down at the table, my head was down. I never lifted it up. Waitress came. Cheeseburgers come. I'm sitting there with my head down. Mom says, Jeffy, lift your head up. You tell me who's staring at you. I lifted my head up, and I said, no one, Mom. She said, that's right. And don't you ever worry about it again. Totally changed the rest of my life. The doctors, Paula, where am I at? Six minutes. I'm done. Hey, I'm going to tell you this real quick anyway, and then I'll quit. I'm sorry, Tim, very short. I missed three months of school. I remember those times as very difficult emotionally and physically in and out of the hospital, relentless, this, that, and the other thing. So when I was at home, I used to take a walkabout and go up into the woods. A big cherry tree fell down. I'd sit on that log, and I remember communing with God, just running the whole thing. What did I do to myself? What my future is going to be like? Praying to him, crying a lot over and over, just crying. I come back out of the woods. Mom would say, how'd you do, Jeff? Good to go, Mom. Good to go. So day came when I had to go back to school. I was scared to death. They had just taken my left eye out. It was bandaged. Both hands were bandaged. They had replaced my one ear drum. It was bandaged. I go back to school, petrified what the kids are going to say. Praise the Lord. They swarmed around me. They were ecstatic to see me. It was a good, a good moment. At that moment, the prettiest girl I ever seen in my life came and said, hi, Jeff, would you like me to carry your books? Her name was Paula. I tell you what, it was she was something. Paula was a varsity cheerleader. She was the lead singer in the Thespians, one of the most popular girls in school, and she absolutely was dating the upperclassman football jock named Larry. <laughs> so, she made me laugh. I made her laugh. I liked being around her. I'd corral myself to see her at the lunchroom. It was really cool. After a couple of weeks, I got informed from a couple of Larry's friends, Larry's not too happy about you talking to Paula. Oh, boy. So I remember going home that night, or going home after school, really down in the dumps. Mom said, what's wrong, Jeffy? Uh, nothing, Mom. She said, you maybe need to go take a walk in the woods. Yeah, I think I will. So I went out to my log, and I was talking to the Lord, just an absolute truth folks. Oh, Lord, I stepped in at this time. What am I going to do? My heart was smitten. My heart was struck with a bolt of lightning. I love this lady from day one. So as I was praying, I didn't hear audibly, but I heard in my head, Jeff? I said, yes, sir. You just got blown up, didn't you? Yes, sir. Well, then, please tell me, what could Larry possibly do to you (laughs) that would be worse than getting blown up? I said, "Uh, okay. I went back to the house, and Mom said, how'd it go, son? Good to go, Mom, I think. (laughs) Folks, don't ever underestimate what God can do. I'm a blown-up victim, victim barely over 100 years old. She's the top of the high school girls. After a couple weeks, Paul and I getting to laugh, know each other, she dumped Larry. We started dating, and I have been with this woman married for 47 years. <laughs> bottom line, okay. bottom line. We all have had trials, we all will have trials, we all are in trials. What we do with those by the hand and grace of God will determine how you come out on the other side. I'm sure Brother Tim will go quite into length with that, but I want to assure you folks, God in his really odd way of working uses your trials to draw you closer to him. Amen. Thank you.
0: Oh, that's it. Yes. Oh. We should check in with Larry on that last statement. <laughs> okay. Larry's still not happy. <laughs> oh making sense out of trials so been waiting a long time to jump into James and along with that for this sermon wanted you to hear from Jeff why why is my life full of hurt and struggles You might be thinking, why is my marriage not the dream that I thought it would be? Why doesn't my body work? Why am I sick? Why are my children hurting? Why did he get the promotion and why did I get passed up? Why does church life sometimes just hurt so much? Why, why, why? Well, that's the book of James. James wants to help us Right where you live. I like to think of James as like, when you read the book of James, I feel like he's in the living room. He lives where you live. He drives with you to work. It's practical, and it's right where real life happens. That's the book of James. And what James says is we we can look at the hard, the hardness of life, The trials of life, we can can look at those things, those sufferings in the eye. The real issues. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to be pretenders. We don't have to pretend like they don't exist because James isn't afraid to address the whys of life. Big idea for the sermon this morning is this. Trials, and later on in James, it'll be the word temptations. They both... Both of those words come from uh, the same Greek root. Trials and temptations are inevitable. James helps us to see that God has a purpose in our trials to grow us in him. Father, would you help us this morning, Lord, as we unpack this text, Lord, aware that there is suffering in the room. There are trials that are currently taking place, big and small. Lord, we pray that through your word that you would bring grace for the trials, Amen. that we might experience your presence through your Holy Spirit. Come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Three points this morning: How we go through trials, when we go through trials, and why we go through trials. Number one, how we go through trials. The short answer: how do we go through trials? Short answer is joy. Now, if you're not suffering this morning and you heard me say that, you just heard me say that, you're thinking, great, let's bust out the food. Let's get into lunch. Let's move on. Thanks for the short sermon. But if you're here this morning and you are currently suffering, you are thinking James has lost his absolute mind. How in the world can James say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? Where is James coming from? I want to encourage you, if you were not here two weeks ago, Alex opened our series on James and he gave us an introduction to James. And that introduction is just very interesting helpful for us to have an understanding what's the what are the big themes what's the big idea what's what's James after in the book of James and so I encourage if you weren't here a couple weeks ago you can go to our website and you can uh, listen to that sermon one of the things that Alex helped us to see is that James is writing to these individuals of the dispersion so James a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion and one of the things you need to know is when you're reading that word dispersion, you need to hear that through the, through, the, through the ears of, well, that is not joy. There's nothing about dispersion, the word itself, that should make you think anything in regards to joy. He's writing to these individuals, to, to say dispersion is to say sufferers. To the 12 tribes who are suffering, Count it all joy, my brothers. That's how we can read that. The history of the Jews was this dispersion. In this case here, these are Christians who were converted to Jews. They are Jewish Christians who were once living in Jerusalem. And that history of the Jews is they they were scattered. If you go back into their their, uh, story, their history, in 722 B.C., Assyria deported them the northern tribes. Again, in 586, this time it was the Babylonians, the southern tribes, and they were captured. They became their slaves. Moving forward into the New Testament, Acts chapter 8, Stephen is being stoned. He's martyred for the faith. And it's that martyrdom that some think that these Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem, that scattered them, dispersion. Let's put it like this. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in Jerusalem who are running for your lives. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. Let's make that clear. It's not a move to North Carolina because I like the mountains. It's not a good career move. Let me get better postured in my career. Or it's not a let's make a move so we can live closer to the grandkids. This was run for your life dispersion. And it's anything but joy. It gets worse. When they fled to the surrounding towns and areas, they were rejected by their fellow kinsmen, Jews, because these were converted Jews to Christianity rejected by their kinsmen and exploited by the Gentiles they were homeless they were not wanted they were often robbed treated unfairly exploited in every way often viewed to be lower than a slave James how does he start? servant it's the word doulos it means slave servant James servant Slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, to all of you who have been scattered and are being treated as less than slaves, you are suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, or deem it nothing but a joyful thing as you face your various trials." Now think about the big picture of James for a moment because James, as he's writing to these suffering saints, he's pastoring them and he's pastoring us this morning as well. And his pastoral concern is that these suffering people, well that suffering is having an effect on the quality of their walk in God one of his concerns as he writes the book is their worldliness his concern that that i'm going to say main thread that keeps showing up throughout the book is this idea hey it's great that you believe in god but what are you doing he says at one point you believe god is one the demons believe that and shudder but your faith without works is dead or again your faith um, if not accompanied by works is he says is useless And so this suffering's having this this quality effect on their walk with the Lord. The world is influencing them. The, The pressures of life is influencing them. And they're beginning to think, well, I have faith. I believe in God. But that belief in God is a dead faith. It has no working to it. And so he calls them and he calls us to suffer with joy. But where does that joy come from? How can you, how, James, how can you say that? Consider for a moment who God is in the text. It's not obvious. It's not immediately obvious. It's not like James is trying to unpack all these aspects of the character of God, but they're there if we mine for them. They're there. Who is God in the text? Because joy doesn't come to you in a vacuum. It doesn't just suddenly, it's not, a, it's not just some sudden feeling um, that just comes out of outer space and land in your living room in the middle of all your suffering. No, there's, there's a meditation here. There's, there's a pursuit of the Lord, who God is here and what he's done for us in our lives. He says, James, a servant, a slave of God. You know what that means? James is making a confession here. God, you are my authority. I belong to you. My life is not my own. I was bought with a price. I am your servant. You are Lord. James, a servant of the Lord. He's the master. He's the owner of life. He's the reason for life. He's breathed life into me. He's the giver of life. He's the authority of that life. James, a servant of the Lord, the master What is that? That's the sovereign one. It's all wrapped up in who is God in the text? James, servant of the the Lord. Sovereign one. The one who is in control of my life. Which means, if he's the sovereign one, which means there is purpose in the trials. Which means, if he's the sovereign one, life is not spinning out. It feels that way, doesn't it, in the midst of the trial? It feels like it's just spinning out of control. And in some regards, it is spinning out of your control and my control. But never does it spin out from the sovereign one's control. I have to agree with John Piper. I don't have the direct quote, but if there's a splinter in the universe that's spinning out of control, we cannot trust God. If there's a molecule that's rebelling on its own, outside of the sovereign hand of God, then you and I cannot trust God. You cannot trust that in the end, that this book, what it says is true. James, servant of God and of the Lord, and what does he say? Jesus Christ, meaning Savior, Redeemer, meaning To to the one who's already resolved my greatest problem, my greatest suffering is not what I'm currently walking through, but my greatest suffering prior to Christ is sin and death. He's Savior. He saved me from my sins. That's what James is saying here. It's all right there tucked in that little... Sentence. Who is God in the text? He says, he says, Can it all joy? What? My brothers. What's he saying there? My fellow redeemed ones. My fellow blood bought. I'm going to say brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul Tripp says it like this, you can't separate your Savior from your trials. That's exactly what James is doing. You can't separate your Savior from your trials. The theology of Scripture doesn't allow you to do that. God is in the middle of your trouble. Now, some of you might be new here or... That might be the first time you heard an idea like that and you're wrestling with that. I just encourage you, wrestle with that. God is in the middle of your trouble. That's James 1. You can never have a biblical view of Christianity and somehow put God outside of your trouble. And so our response to who God is is to be joy. Now be careful here. Be careful as you consider this personally. Be careful as you take this to your community group. Because James isn't tossing out there a flippant response and he's not suggesting a fake response. It's not as if, oh, we're silly creatures, aren't we? That, that if we were to paint a face of joy, that <laughs> there's non-joy going on in our hearts. And so James isn't suggesting fake the joy or offer it as a flippant response in your community group or you just lost your job or your close friend's son was just diagnosed with leukemia or the marriage is a mess James isn't saying, no big deal, with a little cliche, a little bumper sticker theology, count it all joy, brothers. It's not fake stuff. How you doing? Oh, joy. Joy, brother, it's all good. Trials don't necessarily bring a smile to our faces. And James isn't calling us to pretend. It's not a moment for cliches. It's not a moment for simple answers. It's not a moment to dismiss the pain and the hurt that one might be experiencing. So when Mary and Martha come to Jesus and they're broken, distraught, they're hurting because Lazarus has died Jesus didn't offer them cliches. He didn't say, count it all joy, sisters. It'll all be good. He doesn't flippantly throw out some scriptures at them or tell them a cliche answer. What does he do? How does he comfort them? You can say it. He wept with them. He comforts them. Now, he... He knew what the outcome was going to be. Wouldn't you love to have Jesus in your community group at that moment? And at the same time, James is saying that this is a real joy. He's not watering it down either. And so I don't want you to fall off on the other side of that cliff. It's real. It's deliberate. It's a determined man or woman of God who's going to find the joy and wrestle with it, even in the face of the difficulties. How? But how? James is saying, to my beat up brothers of the dispersion. My brothers in Christ who are being treated unfairly, who are not being received by fellow Jews, who are being taken advantage of by these Gentiles, count yourselves, brothers, to be extremely blessed, supremely happy. Count it all joy. All of it, All of these circumstances count it joy. In the face of your suffering, let there be this counting, this gladness of who you are in Christ Jesus. Let there be this joy in one's salvation. Let there be in the midst of the sadness, a deep-rooted joy because Christ has redeemed you. I belong to him. You are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus went to the cross, and because he did so, he's already taken care of yours and my greatest problem, eternal eternal suffering. So Paul says it like this to the Romans, knowing that God is sovereign over all of life. I want to read to you a bit of an extended passage, Romans chapter 8. Paul, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not many of you are familiar with but that's the context for and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know what that says? God gets it done. God gets it done because he is the sovereign one. It's Joseph after having been thrown into the pit and then sold into slavery by his brothers, a slave in Egypt, falsely accused by Pharaoh's wife, imprisoned, forgotten while imprisoned, and so much more that he says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's Paul to the Corinthians, i am acting with great boldness towards you i have great pride in you i am filled with comfort in all our affliction i am overflowing with joy it's acts chapter 5 the sahedron has called in the apostles they beat them they charge them they charge them you may not speak in the name of jesus And then they let them go. And Acts 5 records. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's Paul and Silas, they're in prison. And we find them in Acts 16, and they're singing, and they're praising God, and they're praying. The Bible is no prosperity gospel, it is no Americanized gospel. I think, I think it's become my favorite quote by Charles Spurgeon, so I've shared it before, but it bears worth, it's worth repeating. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages. Yeah. Consider who God is and all that he's done for you. And respond in the midst of our trials with joy. Number two, when we go through trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's going to be a short point. It's pretty simple. It's when and it's not if. He's not saying count it all joy, my brothers, if you go through trials of various kinds. It's, it's when you go through trials of various kinds. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's also various kinds of trials. So those are big, those are small, those are young, those are old. They're relational, their health, their children, their parents, and everything in between. Oswald Sanders writes, When God wants to drill a man, and thrill a man, and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with might blows, converts him into trial, shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he is all about. I'll just close this point with a question. Christian, do you know that to be true? Your testimony is going to look a whole lot different. To my knowledge, no one else blew themselves up in their basement with a chemistry set. Your testimony is a whole lot different and it's a whole lot the same. Do you know that to be true? Number three, why we go through the trials. It's good for us to be reminded of the why. Why do we go through trials? Because here's the thing. If God is sovereign, then your trials are not random. They're not arbitrary. They're not just, it's not this either. It's, it's not that the devil is winning today. Listen, God and the devil are not duking it out in heaven and on some days God's winning and on other days the devil is winning. And oh no, what are we gonna do on the days that the devil is winning? God is sovereign over it all, including that enemy who is the devil. He is in control. So if that's true, then why? Because it's not as if he's not able. It's not as if he's lacking power. It's not as if he's lacking wisdom. Why do we go through the trials? Short answer, to grow in Christ. Short answer is to grow in Christ. Verse three. Let's back up to two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for, it's purpose, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing for you know James is making an assumption isn't he do you know for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness do you do you know that it's very similar to how peter speaks in 1 Peter 4, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why? Because like James, because you know, you know, but rejoice. So he also takes us to joy in the middle of the fiery trial, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What he's saying is that the trials are not random. They're not arbitrary. Rather, they're a test. Now, be careful, because when the biblical writers, and particularly here, James, when he speaks of a test, he's not not thinking what we are probably thinking. In other words, when you say test, you go to school. You're like, oh, it's a test. It's a pass or fail thing. It's a test. That's not the kind of test that James is talking about. Here's what James is talking about, and this is important. The test brings in a picture of metals. Metals, when mind, come to us in a very imperfect state. They're not pretty, and they're not strong they're imperfect. And so when metals are mined, they don't they don't land in the jewelry store. You don't buy a chunk of metal. It doesn't have the value. They what? They need to be perfected first. And in its initial state, metals they make for pretty weak and ugly swords. <laughs> they're ugly necklaces chunk of metal you know stick a stick s- s- stick it on a necklace and wear your chunk of metal what needs to happen well you need to put it in the fire you need to liquefy you need to you need to raise the heat on the metal to such extremes that you liquefy the metal and when you heat it to that extreme, the imperfections actually boil to the surface. And you can skim off the, the imperfections from the surface of that liquefied metal. And then you're gonna cool the metal, which is gonna allow the, the, the metals can then be crafted. They can be formed. They'll that, that process will add a strength to the metals. And of course, when... When in the hands of a craftsman, those metals become beautiful. It's not a chunk that's just mined in a cave somewhere. Refining the metals. The craftsman handles the metal and he crafts it into something strong and something beautiful. And I'm sure you're tracking at this point. That's what it means when James says the testing of your faith. He's speaking of God, the master craftsman, being committed to your growth. This church is grace because in the Christian's life, imperfections are being tested under the fire of the refiner's fire and those imperfections rise to the surface. What? They rise to the surface when the heat is on. They don't rise to the surface when everything's great. Your greatest times of growth in godliness is when things weren't going well. And you were driven to your knees, crying out to God for answers. Listen, if you've not been tested and you would say, I'm a Christian. You you actually should pause a moment and ask yourself, am I truly a believer of Jesus Christ? The Hebrews will put it this way, right? That God disciplines those he loves. He's treating you like a child. You're one of his. He cares for you. It's God's sovereign hand. This is the test that James is speaking of and I'm saying to you that God is committed to turning up the heat to cause the imperfections to be revealed so that now, oh, now I can see them. James will address many of those imperfections. James, again, I said it earlier, but he lives in our living rooms. He drives with us to work. My brothers, chapter two, show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. If a rich man or a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in and if you say to the one, to the rich man, sit here in a good place and to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Busted. Chapter three, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we all who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, but the person who doesn't stumble in what he says is a perfect man, able to control his whole body. Busted. (laughs) That's my living room. Guess what? It's your living room too. (laughs) That's why James writes. We could go on in each of the chapters of James, and we will, so we don't have to do it this morning. Imperfections exist in us, in the practical moments of life, the living room of life reveals your need, my need for refinement. God's at work. And this work, I'm telling you, this work is a work of his grace, that when he heats up our lives to Sift off the imperfections that rise in the heat. I'm saying to you, this is the very grace of God. This is, this we could maybe look at as suffering grace, sanctifying grace, but it is grace. It says to us that he is steadfast, that he is immovable, that he is committed to your growth. These trials are intended, they have an intent, they have have a purpose to them. To work this this ugliness and to bring about this strength, this beauty, this beauty, this beauty that at the end of the day you can't even take credit for the beauty because if it wasn't for his work in our lives, he's what makes things beautiful. Beautiful. And so he says these testings are intended to produce something in us. And he tells us what it is. He says, verse 4, and, or f- verse 3, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces this steadfastness, meaning this staying power. It produces this, I will not be moved no matter what happens. so many illustrations right so many examples that we could run to right now oh what are we going to do about our government what are we going to be do about this what are we going to be do about the education what are we going to do and the long list oh steadfastness that's what it's producing in the believer i will not be moved doesn't matter what happens a faith that is thick it resists the temptation to bail based on what Based on who God is, he's the faithful God, the good God, the sovereign God, who's at work by his grace, removing the imperfections, committed, even in the midst of the trials, using the trials to remove all the ugliness that is in us, steadfast, producing that steadfastness. Here's a moment of worldview in the sermon this morning. Your life, my life, has purpose. It has meaning. You can wake up in the morning feeling defeated, feeling beat down, feeling pummeled by the trials, but I can have joy in the face of the circumstances. Why? Because God is at work. That's the worldview that James is presenting to us. Because my life isn't random because my suffering isn't random. God is using it and he's fashioning me and he's fashioning you into something of an increasing glory of the savior who's doing this work in you. I'm being worked on by the almighty God. He cares about you individually, you. How faithful is our God? steadfast it's the boxer who's getting pummeled in the ring and yet the longer he stays in the longer he stays in the ring there's this defiance that begins to rise up within him there's a realization that the opponent has given him his absolute best shots and I'm still standing yep (laughs) and I'm not going down the more this fight continues on, the more producing steadfastness. And that toughness, if you will, doesn't come from meditating on yourself. Rather, it comes on meditating on God, who He is, and what He's accomplished in each of our lives. That you're a part of the kingdom of God, you belong. To him, and this is grace, and that grace comes to us in these unthinkable forms. James, are you crazy? Count it joy. Do you have a theology of suffering? Do you have a thought theology of suffering grace? Submit to you, that's why we have the book of James. The trials of your life are not reasons to grow angry with God. They're an opportunity to respond in joy that I belong to God. He's at work and this trial is sanctifying me. It's sanctifying grace. It's growing in Christ grace. I was praying, God, will you help me to grow? And then he offers that opportunity. I, go, I don't want to grow that way. I want to grow on my terms right we've heard it many times before help the butterfly out of the cocoon right don't do that i want to help the butterfly because look the, butter, the poor butterfly is struggling so much you help the butterfly out of the cocoon means that we didn't let it build the resistance that it needs the strength that it needs to break out of that c- cocoon and it won't develop rightly and it will die Isn't that so often our prayer? Like I'm the butterfly. God help me out of the cocoon. (laughs) Like, Like yesterday would have been nice. I want to confess that this has been an extremely hard passage this week for me. In the kindness of the Lord, I assigned myself to preach this text I don't know how long ago, a month or two ago. And the weeks leading up to this text, I confess to you, I'm saying this week, I don't want to preach this text. I don't like this text this week. For all of you who know my health history, I forget to tell people, nothing's wrong with my health. Okay, so... What's wrong with me? I'm just like you. I want a comfortable life. I want an easy life. I want the path of least resistance. If my heart is ruled by comfort and ease, then other people come in to life, right? And they ruin it. What happened? If your heart is ruled by power and control and life is spinning out from outside of your control, joy suddenly leaves the room. If your heart is ruled by the need to be affirmed by others and someone else is being affirmed instead of you, right? Joy leaves the room. And I'm saying to you, and I'm saying to me. So I had time this week. Not a 45-minute sermon. all, All week, I'm wrestling with this text, and I'm confessing to the Lord, and I'm crying out to him, please forgive me. Because something's ruling my heart. What rules your heart? God is a jealous God and he will bring trials into your life to expose something other than him is ruling your heart because he wants to work out the impurities. Here's a novel thought. God has a different agenda for my day than I did. He's the sovereign one. Not me. Here's the good news. There's nothing, nothing in your life that's beyond the work of the Redeemer. And that's why we need to be okay and to, to not be so quick to just throw out the cliches and give the easy answers and just listen, you and I are not the savior to people. We get to point people to the savior. We don't, we don't, they've got a better Savior. He moves from this steadfastness to this perfecting. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the idea that you might, some of your translations will say that you may be mature. Lacking in nothing, it's a maturity that He's working in us. Now we can quote, right? We often I quote often from Philippians: "He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus." And all of us go, "Yeah!" Like we love that. You know how He completes that? (laughs) That's why James exists—to tell you this is how I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that through the test through the fire and so we say amen to Philippians 1 yeah that's my verse and we reject James 1 I don't want to have anything to do with that that sounds scary and the reality is we just don't grow without the trials I'm gonna ask the worship team would you guys come and join me on the platform therefore the answer to our trials isn't simply what do I need to do to fix the problem Right? Because we need to fix this. And the sooner we can get this fixed, the better things can be and I can get back to my joyful life. It's not James, is it? The first answer to our trials is, God, use this to grow me. Don't waste your suffering. Use this to grow me. Because if our life is just, if the sum total of our life is, I'm going to do everything I can do to avoid every discomfort of life, and we're going to try with all of our might to avoid all the trials. If they show up, run from them, pursue comfort, pursue ease, pursue quick fixes. If this is how we're going to process trials, let me tell you something. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. And if your version of Christianity is that, then I would, I would encourage you to dig in to build a theology of suffering and do so biblically. Wrestle with texts like this. But because the God of Christianity is committed, committed, you talk about steadfast, committed to your growth. And James is saying to us that that growth takes place in the trials of life. And you're here this morning and you're saying, you're walking through those trials. I want to invite you to meditate on who God is and what he's accomplished in your life. Father, would you help us right now? I pray. I want to invite you just to take a few moments to pray to consider worship team's going to begin to sing i want you to hear the words and as your heart's posture is ready stand and join in the singing to the lord and worship of him